Welcome back to Sheep Stuff You Should Know. This is Dr. Rosie Bush here at in Davis, California, and I'm joined today with uh, Dan Macon up in Auburn. How are you, Dan? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. Doing good. I don't know what day of the week it is, but I'm good. <laughs> I'm not sure what day of the week or even what month it is, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I think it's springtime, though, right? It, it feels time? like summer, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Except it rained yesterday, so you're probably right, spring. Yeah. Did you get, how much rain did you guys get down there? Oh my gosh, we got so, I don't know, I don't look at those things. <laughs> how you know she does not have livestock of her own. <laughs> I can tell that we're going to have to get you a sheep stuff you should know rain gauge. Yes. <laughs> yeah. When I went to feed my dog this morning, that was probably about... <laughs> An inch and a half of rain in his dog bowl. But right, or Brian said, my husband Brian says that that is not a really great estimate because they are fluted. It's very slightly, but they're fluted. So they capture more than. (laughs) Exactly. It's not scientific. It's not the scientific method. See, he's the water guy. He would know. (laughs) (laughs) We got, (laughs) we got like uh, just over three quarters of an inch over two days. Wow, that's that's good. Good, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> it won't do our rangeland much good, but it will definitely help with the irrigated pasture. Okay. And tell your husband, the water guy, that I really don't care how much water there is at three feet. I want it where the grass roots are. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah. he cares i think because of aquifers i don't know there's a whole aquifers aquifers. <laughs> i just want grass yep. <laughs> says everyone in his district too <laughs> uh, yeah. so you had you had the big lambing school over at hopland last week huh yeah yep we we had we aver- started advertising a little bit too late um, but we had six folks registered and it was good with a whole variety of folks that came that had sheep, were thinking about getting sheep. We probably scared some people off <laughs> from getting sheep, but hey, at least now they know <laughs> what they're That's getting right. into. But it was really fun. I love being up there. What was the what were the one or two biggest takeaways for you from the school, from that school versus our school? Um, that school was kind of neat because it's, so it's over two nights. So we start on Friday, we do barn rounds every morning. So Saturday morning and Sunday morning. And the first morning we didn't have any sheep in the mixing pen. Um, we just, we had sheep in the jugs and then sheep waiting to lamb. And so that morning we did what I think everyone expects to do at lambing school, which is wait for lambs to be born and then deal with the newborn lambs. And I've heard this from a couple of other folks too, that they don't, not they, but like in general, when we think lambing school, we think about preparing for lambing and then what to do right after lambing. And the neat thing about this school is on Sunday, we were, or sorry, Saturday, we moved the group that were in the jugs to the mixing pens And so on Sunday, we got to talk about what to look for now that they're in the mixing pens. And Mm -hmm. so we don't forget about anyone at any stage. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had a lamb born out in the pasture. 
Um, and this is not a pasture lambing facility necessarily, <laughs> but they do great. But um, so we talked about how we would get the U in. Um, but obviously with a group of like 10 people, we didn't do it then. Allison did it after um, we had kind of convened for the day. Um, but she was able to get that lamb and you back into the barn, into the jugs, um, and capture all of her data that she records within the first 24 hours. Very similar. Mm -hmm. A lot of that mm -hmm. was very similar to what you do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that was kind of cool for people to get to see the difference between the two days and it was fun. That's a good point because lambing is more than just the delivery of the lambs and, and all of that, isn't it? It's, it's managing the whole process I, I get that you know we're done lambing for all intents and purposes but we're still managing lambs yeah right yeah and that's a that's a good distinction to make and i get kind of bummed because we're you know it's only two days and of course everyone lambed on sunday <laughs> because it rained sure <laughs> so Absolutely. after everyone left all the ewes lambed <laughs> they but, they know they know when there's company too yes they're like oh, i'm gonna just hang on for just sure. like in the summertime <laughs> they know it's good to break out of the fence right when you're sitting down to dinner <laughs> perfect yeah but it was a good i think remind i want so my motivation for doing the lambing school is to get people some more hands-on experience with assisting mm -hmm. but i none of those use needed assistance so and I think that's a good reminder for me. Like I've, you know, I worked in a vet clinic where I saw dystocias all the time, but it's what, like one to 2% of what you actually see in a flock. Yeah. So, if, if things are being really good, you know, there's lots of factors that go into yeah. that. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, and that's, that's, so that's one of those things. I think I mentioned it in my little talk on Saturday that, it's one of those things that you only get good by doing a lot of mm -hmm. because there's so many different ways for a lamb to be stuck. It's yeah. not very common, but there's lots of different ways it can happen. And mm -hmm. until you've been out there by yourself having to try to deal with it, you don't kind of know what your limitations are too. Yeah. And so we ended Saturday by talking about dystocias and all the different ways that they can happen. And I brought the pelvis that, um, you and Roger gave me, so that was super awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I need to have that articulated so it actually stays together because now the pelvis <laughs> fell off the spine. So I just hold it together. It's still a great visual. <laughs> it's lots easier to land when the pelvis comes apart. It is, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. But, <laughs> but yeah, so we had great visuals and we were able to pick up one of the lamps from the jugs and like show how they present. And so we had visuals. And, but, you know, there's, we talked about all the scenarios and all that. And then I realized today that that was probably not the best way to end Saturday because <laughs> <laughs> two people didn't show up on Sunday, <laughs> probably because they had something else to do. I imagine. <laughs> I don't think it's because we scared them off, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but we should have we should have started with that on Saturday, maybe, and ended on a higher note. But yeah, because it doesn't happen very often. But it is good to know that if it does happen, that there are options for training. Yeah, 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 and that everybody that's done it has had to learn by doing it. Yeah. Nobody that's very good at dystocia just saw the pictures in the book, right? Yeah. 
Right. The even even somebody is yeah. And and even even with you or with Sammy, you guys are really good at it because because you've seen all the really hard ones that 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 people tried and couldn't do it. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. I get a kick out of those pictures in the handout, you know, that I make for the lambing schools. The uterus is like this big open circle, <laughs> and the yeah. lamb is inside it. And you can get your hand all the way. Up. Yeah, and it never partly comes out. It's yeah, no. or nothing. Yeah. So I was like, so. Imagine that, but like a lot tighter. <laughs> you can only like, fit one hand. Or maybe a finger. Or even a finger, yeah. We, I think we talked about this last time we recorded, but but we had uh, we had like a meet and greet the lambs for the community where the sheep are right now. And oh, cool. This one woman who had been out walking at the really time we were dealing with a really bad dystocia a couple of weeks ago that Sammy had to come out for. Oh yeah. I, uh, I'd been holding this you that was, it was bad. We had to give her an epidural and Sammy could barely get her hands in. And we ended up turning the U upside down just to kind of shift gravity a little bit. And the lady goes, yeah, I could tell that it was probably not a good time to talk a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Very perceptive. Yeah. Good job. Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! And maybe that four-year-old kid that really wanted to see the lambs. Nah, maybe not that one. That was not probably... that time. <laughs> My girls, when they were four, they probably had already done it. But you know, yeah. It's... I mean, they had really small hands, so they probably could have gotten in there with two hands. Uh, child labor. It's child labor. That's why we had kids. So we have help in the lambing time. Or I get in here. <laughs> 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 I definitely had clients that I <laughs> that called me about pig dystocias and I would say, Do you have any children? <laughs> it's the only way you're gonna get piglets out of there is with tiny, tiny hands. Yeah. <laughs> sure happens. But yeah, one yep. of the suggestions someone mentioned was those um lamb lambing simulators. They're like fake uteruses and I've never seen them. We have, I mean, there's a lot of cattle ones in the States because a lot of education is focused on cattle, mm -hmm. but I'm sure they exist abroad. And I imagine those could be shipped mm -hmm. across seas. So I need to. That'd be interesting to see, yeah. mm -hmm. see what those are like. That'd be cool. be cool. Yeah. Just to show people like, like what it might feel like. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So what's going on this week in Davis? Just, you know, sitting around eating bonbons. <laughs> yeah. <much happening. laughs> Let's see. Today is Tuesday. So <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I actually took yesterday off because apparently Friday was a holiday for UC. <laughs> but I was in Hopland doing a sharing school all weekend. So I was like, well, Chris's daycare was... Um, closed yesterday so I, I spent the day with him nice. and I planted the seed that we were going to go see the sheepdog trials but it was raining so I'm pretty sure they postponed those till today and so we didn't do that but he had it in his mind that he was going to go to work with mommy <laughs> I was like oh shoot so <laughs> we came by the office just to <clears throat> see it because I think he really just Ellie my middle child is the only one who's actually been into my office and 
it's like a bragging right for her. <laughs> <laughs> so Chris really wanted to come here. And I think that's why. So he would have that same bragging right. That's good. Yeah. That's good. And then I was like, okay, well, we need to find some sheep. So I texted Ryan and asked him where he had lambs out in Dixon. And so we drove by them. <laughs> oh, good. Cool. <laughs> saw some sheep and the clouds were amazing. It was really cool. Oh, bet. But yeah, that was not super work related, but <laughs> there's a there's a great children's book by Mary Austin, um, who wrote Land of Little Rain. She also wrote a great book called The Flock, okay. which is about um, sheep production in the San Joaquin and Southern Sierra around the turn of the century. Oh, very cool. Really cool. But she wrote a children's book, and the I can't even remember the title of it, but it's kind of like the sheep go up into the sky. And so she describes the clouds as this flock of sheep um, above the ocean. And it's, it's very cool imagery. I need to get, because that very was cool what Chris imagery. was saying yesterday. He was getting frustrated because all we were seeing were cattle. <laughs> right, that would frustrate anyone. <laughs> He's like, where are the sheep? I want to see sheep. And then he was like, I guess the clouds can be sheep. I think he was getting tired of it. He's like, let's go home. The clouds are sheep. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. I'm good. Yeah. And then we found them and he was pretty happy. <laughs> so I'll look, I'll, I'll find the title of that book. It's, it's cool. It's cool. cool. And the, the flock is cool because at least the version I got, the, the guy that um, kind of edited the new version compares Mary Austin to John Muir. Oh, that's cool. John Muir thought had been a shepherd, but called sheep locusts. And <laughs> Mary Austin was real into the kind of the culture around sheep and, and talks about the Basque and, and Irish and Scottish immigrants in the Southern Sierra that were tending cool. sheep. So it's cool. I'll, yeah. It's worth reading. I will get that one. <laughs> but yeah. Tomorrow. Today was an office day where I was supposed to write something. <laughs> Haven't. You're done. You're finished, right? You're finished. Nope. <laughs> oh my goodness. I just, I, all I do, I feel like all I do all day is talk to people, <laughs> which is great. I love it. But yeah. <laughs> and record so, podcasts. Record yeah. That's what most people I work with think. All you do is record podcasts. Exactly. No, it's just an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and and as you can tell, it takes a lot of prep time to get it ready does. for this because That's we're true. highly prepared. Ryan, this is the stream of consciousness podcast episode. <laughs> we anyway, don't even you... have a topic picked for this <laughs> one yet. No one needed to know that, but now you know. <laughs> but, we'll get there. We'll get there. But yeah, and I forget what I was saying. Oh, you were oh. supposed to write today. I was supposed to write today and I think I'll have an hour to do that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, most of what I do is talk to people and plan. And then <laughs> so I will write this week. That's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really excited because tomorrow we're going to do a little extension of the field project that I was doing with Dr. Murillo. So a good excuse to get out and see more sheep. Um, and then we get to see some shearing happening with Amy Livestock. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. It'll be cool. And you're going to shearing school in two weeks? Yeah. That'll be cool. <laughs> that'll be cool. And then you're going to come and shear um, all of our um, feeders and replacement lambs in the summer, right? July? I don't know if my, like, 
torso will be attached to my pelvis at that time. <laughs> I, it's so funny. Literally everyone that I've talked to about shearing, like one woman said, oh, upper body strength is a limiting factor for women. Um, just like actually doing the blows, like especially the long blows and all of that. Upper body strength is the hardest part. And then someone else I was talking to was like, oh yeah, it's all in the legs. You're like in a squat the whole time. Even your feet are sore. <laughs> and then someone else said lower back. I'm like, guys, it's obviously a whole body thing. Whole body, whole body experience. <laughs> whole body experience. <laughs> I, I, so I, when I went to the school, I did find that I got lots better at that immobilizing sheep without my hands. Yeah. Um, which has, I'm not a very good shearer, but it really helps when you're having to deal with sheep out in the field somewhere. Yeah. Um, particularly really, at Lamington. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to honestly any opportunity I can have to work with sheep in just, you know, like more practice reading sheep, moving sheep. Mm -hmm. And I've done a num a little a bit of it, right? Like <laughs> But most of the time that I get to work with sheep, they're already um, they're already in a handling system or mm -hmm. to be one at a time. So this is a really cool opportunity to work with them at a whole different level. Like they let, you know, we move them in, we move them out. And, yeah. Yeah. And restraining yeah. them and all of that. I'm excited. And the, the sharing part of the barn is really cool at Hopland. I wish, yeah. wish we had a sharing setup like that. Yeah, it's big. It's cool. Yeah, I mean that's a big barn anyway. But. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's nice with all the with the slatted boards and the pins and real sharing boards and it's very nice. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It'll be very cool. <laughs> now I have my moccasins, so I will have to share again because otherwise it's just a frivolous purchase. Stranded cost. Stranded <laughs> yeah. cost. It's what we say in economics. Oh, okay. Stranded yeah. cost. We yeah. don't want that. Yeah. Or you just blew a bunch of money. We could also just say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's cool. So we're we're actually kind of aiming towards sharing. We're we're not shipping sheep out of where our winter feed is until, oh, I think three weeks from tomorrow. And then we'll bring them home and take them off feed um, for like 12 hours. And then they'll go back to our summer ground. So we're eliminating one of our hauling trips this year with the sheep, which will be really, That's cool. really good. Yeah, especially with $6 gas. And you guys wait how long after your last lamb before you typically shear? Our shearer likes to wait six weeks. Um, we're kind of pushing that envelope this time mm -hmm. because that usually means we're going to have to haul twice. Mm -hmm. But we're going to be, our, our youngest lambs will be five weeks old by then. So cool. And why, why does he like to wait that long? He says that they're a lot stickier if they're just freshly lactating. And it must be some kind of hormone response um and he can he can also tell even just by the way the wool comes off if you use nursing twins or singles because the the ewes that are working harder are a little tougher to shear their really? wool just doesn't That's come off as easy yeah i wonder if that has to do with like how the lambs find the ewe and that could be that could be and they're just they're pumping all kinds of nutrition into lactation yeah 
Yeah. And so I so I'm thinking about it. Um, where does the fiber grow from? Does it grow from the skin or grow from the tip? Grows from the skin, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm like, this is a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> I have to think about that way too hard. My brain is totally fried. <laughs> but that would that would make sense, right? If they're yep. if they're having any kind of stress, that fiber is going to be stressed at the skin level. Yes. Where the, where the hand piece is going. Oh man, sorry. I'm just looking at myself. <laughs> oh, uh, that was too good of a question. <laughs> surprised I thought of it. I know that was good. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's awesome. That makes sense. Um, that is something I've always, I imagine there's, I know we notice like weak spots and breakage and wool because of stress events. And I'd be interested to do work in like in that area with different disease cycles and things like that and see if we can improve that. With disease cycles and I think nutrition too. Yeah, I'm not sure it's all related to nutrition because think that you know i a lot of just energy demand when we're dealing with disease like how much energy yeah. the immune system requires all those other micronutrients they need at a higher yeah. level and all of that they're probably taking away from fiber growth i thought it would be interesting for range sheep to kind of test the forage quality on like a monthly or or twice a month basis, mm -hmm. and then look at that fiber diameter over that 12 month period and see if there's any correlation with fiber diameter between fiber diameter and, and uh, forage quality, nutrition quality. In All sorts adult? of fun stuff. Yeah, I think so too. It'd be really interesting. Because I think it was Alan Petty at the talk he gave at Wool Growers, he had that really cool graph that um showed the what was it like the priority the um mm -hmm. that different systems have for nutrients mm -hmm. that I, that sentence absolutely made no sense but <laughs> i know what you meant cool good hopefully someone else did too but <laughs> like the different systems have maybe better access, not better access. Gosh, what am I trying to say? But the body prioritizes certain systems over others and fiber yeah. is the lowest priority. Yeah, right. Um, and then I think growth and reproduction take a hit. And, but um, cardiovascular and like the nervous system are top priority. Yeah. And yeah, I like that graph. That was cool to think about that. Like, I've seen Dr. McNabb has a, a graph on kind of micronutrients and minerals in relation to the immune system in cattle, mm. which is interesting too. And it could be interesting to, to get a better understanding of that in sheep mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. I have seen something not related to the immune system, but I've seen, um, I believe it may have been, one of the studies that came out of Dr. Stewart's graduate group, and I could be totally wrong, but I was looking at selenium and I know his papers came up in that search a long time ago that I did. And it was, they were showing the different um, demand for selenium in different production stages. <laughs> like the demand goes up during pregnancy, the demand goes up during lactation. 
Mm-hmm. And the hard thing with that is that we can only feed selenium at a finite level because of federal regulations. Mm-hmm. And so when that demand goes up, we can't necessarily meet that demand with mm-hmm. like sodium selenite and things like that, that are kind of a on-demand selenium right. feeding basis. Right. But potentially then it was comparing to like organic, not organic, but like um, as opposed to sodium selenite that is inorganic, organic being a selenomethionine sources of selenium that incorporate methionine is an amino acid. So selenomethionine incorporates into body tissues and is potentially a body storage form of selenium so that in those higher demand time periods, there's actually selenium available that can be mobilized. Oh, okay. In tissues. Yeah. 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 Kind of like calcium can be stored and mobilized and Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. But different. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> different spot on the periodic table, anyway. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I feel like we've hit a topic around shearing and fiber. And <laughs> yeah, we have. We have. We have, I think. Um, so the other stuff, you know, one of the things I was thinking about at the lambing schools, how everything else is set up timing wise. So the other thing that we have to think about at shearing time is all the supplies up front. So I've got to get shearing or wool sacks and, and all of that sort of thing. But then we also tend to treat our external parasites at that time. So mm-hmm. we've got to be thinking about what we're going to use this year for parasite control and, and then making time to actually get that done, you know, with everything yeah. else going on. So what do you guys usually use for parasite control? Oh, we've used Ultra Boss, which is just a pour-on that I think is labeled for cattle. I don't know if it's labeled for sheep or not. Um, of course, we talked to our veterinarian about it. Yeah, I believe that one is. I don't know. I just looked it up like a, two weeks ago or whatnot. It may, it may be it may be labeled for sheep too, but we we wait till after we've shorn just so we can get it. It is all right. Illegal, <laughs> John. You don't have to edit that part out. <laughs> yeah. So for all the the legal versus illegal use, so <laughs> these poron insecticides are licensed by EPA which is different from FDA. And I know like, why do we care about that? FDA is the only, so FDA licenses drugs, drugs and medical devices and those things and not vaccines that animal vaccines are through USDA. (laughs) But FDA is the only agency that allows for um, extra label drug use with the with working with your veterinarian, EPA does not allow for extra label use of pesticides at all. So these pesticides, like these topical products, so are these are, are pesticides rather than than medical treatments. Yeah, and which is confusing because there yeah. are porons that are drugs. 
because they're topically applied, but they're meant to be absorbed by the skin and actually work systemically. Yeah. So it's easy to be confused with those things. Yeah. Yeah. I I never really understood that distinction. So I'm glad that I'm legal. Really glad that I'm legal. (laughs) If you happen to be working for the EPA, you're welcome to come and check it out because we're we're legal. We're totally legal. (laughs) (laughs) And this product is labeled for lactating and non-lactating dairy goats. (laughs) It's amazing that the goat is on the label. That's wow. Yeah, that's huge. So wow. Not that we're endorsing Ultra Boss by any means. <laughs> no, no. But we are endorsing taking care of external parasites. Yeah. So what are what are some of the things that, um, and I know I, you weren't going to talk about this because there's already a great ASI podcast on it, <laughs> yeah. but what are some of the things I would be seeing if I had significant external parasites in the sheep right now? Um. So typically they're very itchy. Um, so you might see them rubbing on fences and, um, if they have horns, like, you know, goats with horns, but, um, even sheep with horns, they'll use them, um, to scratch themselves. And so you might see some wool loss. Mm -hmm. Um, that said, there are other things that can cause wool loss. So it's not Mm -hmm. always parasites. Um, I think some of those plant ons and things get in there and can get pretty mm-hmm. irritating. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's definitely worthwhile taking a look and seeing if there are parasites. And it's interesting because everyone I talk to says wool mites, and I'm curious what they mean by wool Because, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I learned the names of these insects and but that's not what we call them like colloquially. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I know when we're shearing, we can tell, I, I don't know that we've, we've got parasite evidence, but I can tell if a ewe's been scratching her back because mm-hmm. um, the fleece will be thinner and a little shorter on top. Yeah. And, and that's definitely noticeable. So, and most of the parasites are, you can see, Some of them are small. They might be kind of depending on what their diet is, like the lice, which I think is what people are calling wool mites, but I don't know. I've just assumed because lice is such an ugly term. It is. (laughs) But but you can actually see them. Mites you wouldn't be able to see with the naked eye. You'd have to take a skin scraping and look at it under the microscope. But lice you can see. And if they're chewing lice, they eat like the fiber. So they'll actually Mm. eat the wool fiber or hair or the dead skin. And they're, they tend to be like white or light tan, like a sand color. So they can be harder to see, but you'll see them Mm -hmm. move around. Mm -hmm. And then there's sucking lice that actually suck blood. um, And they can be darker in color because they, basically the blood meal inside them. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But yeah, and then there's the kids, which they talk a lot about on the ASI podcast. I learned a lot. I I knew about kids, but I didn't know all about them. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> I'm gonna have to so listen cool. now. <laughs> oh, it's really cool. You definitely have to listen to that one. <laughs> but apparently, they have um, they grow their eggs inside them, and then they like deposit the pupa on the wool. 
So they like invest a lot more in their next generation. Yeah. Um, and, but they're just, yeah, they're, they're actually a fly, not a tick, but um, I think we call them ticks. <laughs> and, but they um, just live in the wool and crawl around and they, they drink blood. I was going to ask, are they blood? Mm-hmm. Eat blood meals. Okay. So they can, they definitely cause irritation. So you'll see that if there's enough of an infestation, they definitely, they can impact the production of the animal. And it was really interesting talking to Dr. Murillo about that because she, you know, like with plants, pests on plants, you can identify pretty easily what a threshold would be, like however many pests per plant would be worthwhile actually treating. Mm-hmm. But we don't, it's hard, so hard to measure with an animal because of how many different factors there are. Um, with, you know, how resilient the animal is, how other, how many other diseases they may be dealing with at the same time, what breed they are, all of those, what type mm-hmm. of wool they have. So that's one of her passions is to try to better define that. Um, like what, you know, when is it worthwhile really um, investing in a parasite control program? And, um, so. Any differences in fine wool or coarse wool sheep? Yeah, that's what she was saying. She said that there tend to be more in she not necessarily coarse wool versus fine wool, but I think it's a similar distinction. But like closed versus open mm-hmm. wool, or like how densely the wool is mm-hmm. on the animal, which mm-hmm. I think fine wool sheep tend to be more closed. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said they tend to have more challenges i believe is what she said <laughs> okay so that'd be interesting with our sheep to look at the at the um shropshire versus the longer coarse wool yeah sheep see if there's yeah. any differences in those yeah um, well so far we haven't found many <laughs> that's good it's that's great good. for those flocks and <laughs> <laughs> most of these parasites require a host so they don't have a very long environmental stage if any and so if there's not if they're closed herds then they've done a great job of controlling them and keeping them out right so yeah it's really interesting so it'll be interesting to look back at that and see kind of from a management perspective are there weather conditions that influence that you know, like a warm, dry versus cool, dry versus cool, wet. Any of those factors have, play a role? Yeah, I think so. When they're warmer, their metabolism is faster, so they can complete life cycles faster. Okay. Um, I think shearing probably has the most to do with that life cycle. So, like in sheep, maybe compared to goats, like oh my gosh, we tend to see so much lice in goats. <laughs> and it'll be interesting to see if they cross species or if they tend to be really species specific. Mm-hmm. Um, but in sheep, we shear them every year and that, you know, either you're physically removing the parasites or the environment is so inhospitable to them that they mm-hmm. could drop off or die or whatnot. And so we really reduce the numbers at shearing 
Whereas in goats, they don't really have that. I mean, other than uh, fiber goats, but um, typically with haired goats, they don't have that opportunity. So that actually would be something really interesting to look at in here. Sheep, mm -hmm. a difference. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking that right now. <laughs> it would. It would. And, you know, it's so interesting, like with the Dorpers that we've had, by this time of year, they're rubbing anyway, just because they're starting yeah. to shed and they're yeah. trying to get yeah. that wool off. Yeah. Mm. I'm making a note for myself. <laughs> <laughs> More opportunity to avoid writing. Yeah. <laughs> It's good. It's good. The rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the neat thing about working with Amy is that she wants to do, or we want to look at kind of like an integrated pest management plan. So it would be, mm -hmm. you know, chemicals, uh, management practices, and then maybe if there's other non chemical things that can be used to treat, um, yeah, treat parasite loads that are there. I think those principles apply to predator management too. I think, I think an integrated approach applies in that regard. Yeah. We had, I think I showed you pictures. We had a, a gray fox hanging out in the lambing paddock. Yes. About a week ago. Just sunning. We, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and gray foxes are probably too small to do much harm, but never like something with teeth that's not supposed to be in your lining paddock to be there. That has an appetite for meat. That has, yeah, yeah, exactly, a carnivore. <laughs> um, but but I think, you know, we, we had our, our livestock guardian dog field day about a week ago, a little over a week ago, and it's hard to separate the whole system of predator protection out. I couldn't point to one thing and say that's what works. It's the whole systematic approach, including that the predators have to have some fear of me as the shepherd. I think, too. Yeah. You know, they don't, they have to not want to be around me. Yeah. And so it, it's hard to explain. Well, just like we were talking about targeted grazing, it, these complex systems are hard to explain mm -hmm. unless you're immersed in them. Yeah. When did dogs start becoming more common in the U.S.? Like livestock guardian dogs, not just dogs. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the late '80s, um, okay. Hampshire guy that taught at Hampshire College or that ran their little sheep unit at Hampshire College um, started bringing importing some dogs in the late '80s, mid '80s maybe, and then they started becoming more and more common. Okay. After that, Ray Coppinger was his name. Yeah. I, gosh, I'll have to find her name. But there was a talk that was given at the American Dairy Goat Association um, by a woman named Tamara. I can't remember her last name. Um, I will find it. And... She gave a really great break, like rundown and history of livestock guardian dogs and showed a, a lot of Tamara Taylor, um, a lot of really cool um, pictures of dogs in like European countries where they kind of originated and how, how they're used there. 
Mm-hmm. And I th- one of her, one of the take things that I took away was that they're often paired with a shepherd. Rarely mm-hmm. are they out by themselves, mm-hmm. and being socialized with their shepherd and not necessarily bonded with their shepherd because they're bonded to the livestock. But that, like you said, like that dynamic, that integrated approach with a shepherd and the dog and, you know, if there was a donkey and, you know, the whole system there, they worked together. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes dogs get put out on their own and we wonder why it doesn't work. Yeah, and, and sometimes dogs get put out on their own and they work great. Yeah. You know, I think it's it's there's so much complexity to that system um, yeah. that that there's probably a lot of uh, native knowledge about it. Mm-hmm. If you went and talked to people that had been using them for hundreds or thousands of years, mm-hmm. um, that you probably can't create empirically you probably can't design a research project to go out and look at what attributes make a dog the perfect dog in a specific situation Mm -hmm. but you could go talk to the herder in that environment he could or she could tell you here's what i look for in a dog and here's what how i make sure i get that dog more times out than i than not Mm -hmm. um it's just it is a really interesting dynamic um, to think about and it's interesting to see, I mean, I, I think the dogs that we have now are better dogs than the dogs I had when we started. I think I, I'm better at working with those dogs 16, 17 years in than I was when we started and hopefully would continue to be better at it, you know. Mm-hmm. Always, Always more learning. Learn. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But, I, you know, it's interesting with our, at this workshop, um, our dogs came up and barked a few times as as people came to the workshop and then pretty much just laid in the shade and watched us or slept. And one woman said, now, it doesn't seem like your dogs will bark very much, but I've heard that these dogs bark a lot. And so part of the, the challenge, I think, from an extension standpoint is how do you how do you demonstrate in a workshop setting what the dogs do and what you can expect from the dogs? Because that's not their normal environment. Yeah, it's it's an interesting challenge. Yeah, we did try. Got some new collars on dogs and sheep now. I can look on my cell phone and tell you right where they are right now. Oh wow! Like there's new devices in there. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So that's going to be kind of fun to see. See what happens, and we have one on a ewe that's probably going to lamb, so we might be able to see if there's changes in her amount of movement as she comes up to lambing. That's really cool. To be neat. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I saw the collars on the dogs at Hoplin. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a guy in Scotland that's done some work on um, sheep that can predict within 12 hours of when they're going to lamb through remote sensing because of the algorithms that they've written for this GPS tracker. Yeah, that makes sense. Which would be kind of cool in a range setting. Yeah, that would be cool. Do those rumen sensors? <laughs> Ooh, be worth checking too. Yeah. Yeah. All sorts of fun stuff. 
Yeah. I don't know how long they last though, right? Because they have a battery life. But... That's these new trackers that we're trying out are supposed to be set up to track um, shipping containers on the ocean. So they're supposed to have good battery life. Cool. That's one of the reasons we're testing, see how long they last. Well, and on a collar, you can change them out and put new ones. If you put them all in the room, or <laughs> room and you just True. Them in. <laughs> True, just be adding them in. Although one of the limitations with the collars that we had been using was catching these dogs in Truckee in the summertime oh, to yeah. change batteries. Yeah, that makes well, sense. Uh, yeah, all fun stuff. That is cool. Animal behavior. <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah, human behavior. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Well, next time we record, let's see, you probably will have been to sharing school. Oh, yeah. We will have been to Ryan's sharing. We can, we can report back on that. And uh, we'll be getting ready for our sharing. So it'll be yeah. a busy time. We need good. to have like a life cycle of wool. <laughs> oh, that'd be fun. <laughs> I think we should go record a podcast at Dalio. Yeah, that would be super fun. Markel is so sweet. She's so energetic. Markel, if you're listening by some <laughs> odd chance, if you're one of the five or six people listening to this podcast, <laughs> we want to come interview you while the machine is running because I think that'd be fun too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We have an assignment. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Awesome. Well, have a great rest of your day. Get some writing done. I will. <laughs> we'll see you tomorrow. All right. Thanks, Dan. This has been Sheep Stuff You Should Know. I'm Dan Macon up here in Auburn, California. Dr. Rosie Bush down at UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. And uh, we'll see you soon. <laughs>